everyone. Welcome to Fire the Canon. This is the podcast where we read the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or not. This time we have a special guest with us. My name's Jackie. I'm one of your hosts. My name's Rachel. I'm your other host. I'm Theo. I'm the producer. Oh, wait. Did you give yourself a demotion? Uh. Yeah, he used to be the executive producer. Oh, he doesn't want to say it in front of Ross. I, I got get a it. little shy about <laughs> saying I was the executive Oh, producer. no, you've got mad executive function, Theo. Claim it, man. Live your power. Yeah, I'm the executive. I'm the legislative. I'm the judicial producer. Yeah. Okay, that was a bit much, man. Okay. You should have okay. dialed that. <laughs> Let that frontal part of your brain be a little quieter, I think. But anyway, with us, we have Ross White, who is um, a poet, an author, and he also is the director of Bull City Press, which is an independent publisher of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. He is a professor uh, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and in fact, he used to be my professor. He was my very first poetry professor in college. Mm. He also hosts a couple of podcasts. One of them is The Chap Book, which is a podcast devoted to to chapbooks, which are um, like books of poetry, but just a little minier, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or a lot minier. Or a lot minier. <laughs> but sometimes they're fiction and sometimes they're nonfiction. Ooh. Uh-oh, Jackie. Yes. So they could be a lot of things. You can make anything tiny. <sighs> That's why they did that movie Downsizing with Matt Damon. Okay. You can make anything tiny. Mini potatoes, mini lemons, all sorts of things can be tiny. Welcome, Ross. Thank oh, yeah. you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yes. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, Ross said that he wants to talk about his favorite poem, which is... Ozymandias. I love it. Love it. Shelley's Ozymandias, the 14 greatest lines in the English language. Shakespeare, step off. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm making that claim. And so, and his wife, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, clearly thought she could outdo him by writing thousands of lines, but no, it turns out 14's all you need. That's all you need. So, Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I feel like if you want to, should one of us read the poem, Ross? Should you read the poem and then we can talk about it? Yeah, let's have Ross read it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we're basically having you be a lecturer. Is that okay? Oh, boy, yes. I, yes. No, I'm used to it. I talk about this poem anytime anybody will let me, so you're going to have to shut me up. Oh, this is great. And it's been a long time since I've gotten a lecture, so. Yes. <laughs> and it's been a long time since I've lectured you, Jackie. Um, <laughs> yes. No, like I always, every time I read this poem, I get a little nervous because this poem was the trailer for Breaking Bad season five. And so I'm always hearing Brian Cranston in my head and he's got that (laughs) gravelly voice. He's like, I met a traveler from an antique. And you're like, whoa, white is kicking ass. I have allergies. I could read it. I could probably. (laughs) Do it. Hell yeah. No, 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 no. Let's get our guests to do it. No, not at all. Well, it's time to introduce our surprise guest, Brian Cranston. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! All right, here we go. Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Damn. All right. 
Welcome to Breaking Bad. I thought Jackie told me you thought this poem was really silly. I thought she was like, Ross wants to talk about this poem because he thinks it's so silly. So I was really shocked I, I when you were like, I, I love it. It's cool. No, I don't think I use the word silly. No, I feel like that's false advertising. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I think it's badass. <laughs> I, I definitely didn't say that. I said he said it's his favorite poem and he could talk about it all day. <laughs> I think I think I wanted to talk to you all because you're silly. Yeah, like Jackie and Rachel. Oh, maybe least. that's how the wires got crossed. Yeah. I thought it was because we were badass. <laughs> well, Rachel's badass. Oh, oh, no. Got you, Jackie. Nobody who's ever taken a poetry class can be badass. That's true. It's really that impossible. <laughs> you guys are supposed to fight back. We're lovers. We're not fighters. No, it's cool. We're all we're all the sad kids dressed in black. We're like sprawling out our little poems. I feel like poets are not likely going to fight back, right? Well. I mean, Byron was badass. Mm. I don't know, Rachel. I could maybe do a little haiku battle on you later, but it's going to be in my shower and no one else is going to hear it. <laughs> and it's going to be in six months after I've thought of something good. <laughs> You're yeah. going to do a battle on me. Is that how you phrase it? <laughs> Inspired by you against you. Okay. Okay. So when I reread this, I was confused <laughs> because it starts out with one guy talking and he's like, I met a guy who said this. Why did he say this to him? In what context? Did he ask for this information? Did he just show up and say it? If someone said this to me, I would say, why are you speaking this way? What is going on here? Well, I mean, the first thing we got to realize is he's a traveler from an antique land, right? Mm -hmm. That clearly means he's like, ah, I had to get out of there. I'm at the bar now. <laughs> this, is yeah. definitely, this is definitely a poem set in a bar. It's got to be. Really? Okay. So. Or yeah. like a, like a public meeting place of some sort. A pub, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Mm. Wow, Rachel is badass. I know about pubs. <laughs> well, what about this? What is, why is it your favorite, Ross? Like, walk us through. Okay, so it's a sonnet, right? And it rhymes. And it rhymes. And the rhyme scheme is not, not a super easy one because, you know, you've got land and sand in lines one and three, but then stone and frown mm. rhyme with each other in lines two and four. And so that's like a little bit of an off rhyme. And so though it is a sonnet and though it does have a regular rhyme scheme, it's also sort of resisting that idea. It's like a little bit of imperfection, but also a little bit to sort of uh, throw you off the scent. Yes. I like that phrasing. I feel like we've talked about that before with poems. I like it when it's sneaky. It's not in your face, but you go back and you're like, ooh, I see what he was doing, but you have to think about it a little bit. Yeah. Also, I know that with sonnets, it's supposed to be divided into like eight and six or classically it would be, but this is not broken up because you have a rhyme that carries over from the eight to the six. Right. Well, so he's kind of moving shiftily throughout the, <laughs> yeah. the rhyme. I mean, that's just a thing he's doing. Like a snake in the sand. Right. I feel like you're referencing something there and I'm missing it. But there is sand all through this poem. No, I'm not referencing an Emily Dickinson poem or anything like that. No. Oh, yeah. Okay. The Little Prince, maybe? I hate sand. It's sticky and get everywhere. Is that what you're talking about? No, The Little Prince, the book that we did an episode on where there's a snake in the desert that's a significant Part no, I thought Ross was talking about Star Wars, where Anakin oh. is like, I hate sand. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know me well enough to know that I am the nerd who would totally talk about Star Wars when talking about Ozymandias. But yeah, no, I was totally not there at all. Okay. All right. <laughs> Rachel and I got three guesses. I don't know if we got any of them right. <laughs> uh, no, my bad. I, would, I, I wouldn't like drop in a, a reference there. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so like the poem's a little bit sneaky. But one thing I really love about this one is in addition to its formal challenge, its rhyme scheme, its meter, 
the 14 lines, uh, sonnets traditionally have what we call a volta or a turn, which mm-hmm. is sort of a shift in the argument. And that usually happens around line nine. I think we would argue that in this poem, it happens in line 12. But in addition to all of that, I feel like Shelley's like, okay, how many different points of view can I wedge into 14 lines? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, how many different levels of remove can I get between you, the person hearing the poem, and our original speaker, as it were, if we sort of think of Ozymandias tooting his own horn right. being our original speaker. Because he does say, like, the most interesting thing in yeah. the poem. Yeah. I mean, that's baller. Like, don't you don't you occasionally— That's something, like, Rachel would say. Look on my work, see mighty in despair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, you made, you made a really good salad for lunch, and you're like— Take a look at this. <laughs> yeah. So to me, when I read the poem, I do think, like, oh, those lines are kind of cool— but then when I read the whole thing, I'm kind of like, isn't it a little pathetic? Yeah, that's the idea, right? Isn't it supposed to be pathetic? Like, Oh, totally. Because I, when I read it, I'm not thinking, what a cool guy. I'm thinking, like, didn't he know his statue's head was going to come off or whatever? <laughs> yeah, but it's, a, it's such a killer reminder that no matter how badass we think we are in life, Rachel, uh, all things do come to an end. We're yeah. all going to become silly in the end. <laughs> not America. Yeah. The American Empire will last forever. <laughs> well, yeah, not yeah. this, though. But yeah, it's so like you said, Ross, like there's so many layers of remove. And I feel like that first line to me functions as instead of just someone saying, hey, I'm teaching you about Ozymandias. Like I'm telling you what someone else told me. So it makes him it makes the first person speaker not the authority. Take it or leave it. Right. And this will never hold up in court. It's all hearsay. It's Mm. all hearsay. I actually remember something that I think it was you who told me about my own poems. You were just like, you're very um, authoritative. Like you just say things as though you know them. And I think you may have meant that as a compliment, but I was like, shit, I do that. Like maybe I should not do that as much anymore. Yeah. Just add a line at the beginning of every poem now. Just a traveler told me. It's like someone told me this. Yeah. (laughs) I love a good authoritative speaker in a poem. Yeah. But when you're 19, maybe you don't know anything. Um, So it's us (laughs) listening to a guy who heard from a guy who read on a plaque that a sculptor carved who heard from the king. Right. Who maybe didn't even meet the king. So we're the fifth level of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And the cool thing is that the listeners of the podcast just heard me reading it, but I'm hearing it from the poem (laughs) on the page. Right. So they're six away. Mm. More. Well, and we tend to think with poems that the poet and the speaker are not necessarily the same person like whoever's talking in a poem Mm -hmm. the poet has the ability to fabricate a little bit you can get fictive and so you might say i did this but it's not necessarily the real you that's done that thing like do we think shelly was himself hanging out in a bar and heard exactly this rant (laughs) from the traveler listen you know every time i go into a bar somebody's speaking in rhyme (laughs) i mean yeah the bars you tend to frequent yes but i think This is very true. I also think that poets say this a lot because we're worried that someone is going to look at our poems and be like, hmm, that's them talking. And it's like, no, we're totally being fictive. This is someone else. And many of many of the times it is. Yeah. Well, you want that protection. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Novelists don't have to do this. Yeah. People are are happy to be like, oh, you know, is a character in your novel based on me? You know, everybody still wants to know. And the answer is always yes. Right. But with the poem, they just assume like, oh, whatever it is you're doing. And you can say the most insane things. Yeah. And people will be like, 
did that really happen to you? It's like, <laughs> yes, I flew into a crystal tower on Griffin's <laughs> wings. Sure. Are you quoting one of Jackie's 19-year-old? <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah. I have them all in a folder in front of me, and at the end of the episode, I'm just going to yeah. read it. I was it. doing yeah. a lot of MDMA at the time. I, I can't explain it any other way. <laughs> Speaking very authoritatively about these Griffin wings. I don't know, Jackie. <laughs> Draft two. I met someone once who told me about these Griffin's wings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, it is. I mean, this poem is, could you call it ironic? I mean, someone, clearly this guy, Ozymandias, who who was uh, modeled after Ramses II, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that Ozymandias was the Greek name for the Egyptian pharaoh. Yeah. So I th- I'm not sure it's modeled after. I think it really is him. It's him. Yeah. I think I saw something that said, like, he probably would have seen this sculpture and approved of it. You know, it was being made in his lifetime and his likeness. And he would have said, like, yeah, this is what I want to be remembered for. I like this depiction of me or whatever. And of course, not realizing one day it would be laying in the sand with nothing around, none of his works to despair at whatsoever. Right. But you know, when you have conquered or have ruled over 90% of your known world, you think you're pretty awesome. Is that what toddlers feel like <laughs> until they grow up and they're like, oh. Yeah. I mean, I've always thought cats were probably a more appropriate analog because <laughs> my cat definitely is is like, look upon my works. I just coughed up this hairball. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I do despair. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think you definitely see kids get, uh, you know, they'll puff their feathers out. That's not the right phrase. Is it? <laughs> that was a terrifying <laughs> image. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. You know, kids will kids will get all haughty on the playground, uh, thinking that they're king shit, and it's, yeah, it's like for their known world, they are a big deal, and they've been told that somewhere along the line. Mm. Bad parenting. I know, bad, and bad then parenting. and then you realize, like, oh, mate, there's there's more world than just these sands over here. Yeah, and these monkey bars over here. Yeah, I was about to say something. Well, not about to, but I I have something to say. Say it. Go ahead. Um, so I took like a class on the romantics. When I was at UNC, so I did study this poem and like his friend group, basically. So I I did a little bit of refreshing. But if you guys want to talk a tiny bit about the history of the poem, it's quite funny. Oh, yeah. L- Bring it. Get into the silly part. I think you're going to love this. I think Theo's going to be interested. Oh, I saw this as well and I loved it. I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Very funny. So Shelley I know what you're going to say. <laughs> was hanging out with his, I don't know if she was actually his wife at the time or like his bigamist wife I don't know whatever there was a long period where he was married to someone else but he was with teenage Mary Shelley and anyway so he had a friend named Horace Smith and at the time the idea of like Ozymandias was kind of percolating around British society because as the English loved to do they were basically stealing a lot of artifacts yeah and one Mm -hmm. of the artifacts that they were stealing was this bust of Ozymandias. So Shelley had never seen it, but he heard about it, of course. And there's like, did you see what the actual translation is, Jackie? Of the Friends poem or what? No, the translation of on the real statue, like the actual inscription, because he definitely like tuned it up a little bit. King of kings, Ozymandias am I. If any want to know how great I am and where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. Yep, so Shelley's is better. But so he and his friend Horace Smith were like, hey, you know what's popular in our friend circle is poetry contests. So why don't we (laughs) both write a poem on the same theme 
and we'll see whose is better. <laughs> so they both wrote their poems and they both published them, but eventually Horace Smith like changed the title of his because they used to both be called Ozymandias. But do you guys want to hear what his friend's poem was? Yeah, tell us. Oh, hell oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, it's also pretty short. He, it says he produced a now forgotten poem in you know competition with Shelley, and he called his... On a stupendous leg of granite, discovered standing by itself in the deserts of Egypt with the inscription inserted below. Whoa. Yeah. I think he should have stuck with the original title. Here's his poem, and you guys tell me which one you like better. Okay. In Egypt's sandy silence, all alone, stands a gigantic leg which far off throws the only shadow that the desert knows. I am great Ozymandias, saith the stone, the king of kings. This mighty city shows the wonders of my hand. The city's gone. Not but the leg remaining to disclose the site of this forgotten Babylon. We wonder, and some hunter may express wonder like ours, when throw the wilderness where London stood, holding the wolf in chase. He meets some fragment huge and stops to guess what powerful but unrecorded race once dwelt in that annihilated place. Is that your new favorite, Ross? Uh, he just gets very explicit with the the thesis. <laughs> the city's of the poem. gone. <laughs> I mean, you know, give the dude a break. It's really tough when you're like out there, you're plying your craft, you're you know, you're trying to do something good, and then it turns out that like. Your drinking buddy is one of the greats of all time. You know, Charlie Friendship over there hacking out his novel. And he's like, hey, you wanna look at you wanna look at my novel? And his friend Tony Morrison is like, sure, Charlie. <laughs> I had something like this happen to me at a grad school interview, so not anything similar to writing a poem, but there was one school that wanted us to, instead of just having individual interviews, they paired us with another interviewee and had us go in together and they like gave us basically like a paper or something to read and then had us discuss it in in front of a panel. And I was, this was a, you know, genetic counseling program. I was paired with someone who already had a PhD in molecular genetics, cancer genetics. And I'm little old me with a psychology and poetry degree. And we get paired together and she absolutely kills it. And everything I say is wrong. And (laughs) everything she says is much better. And she got in and I didn't. And I was just like, how is that fair? I was Horace. She was Percy. It's just you're never going to line up. You do have to give credit where credit is due. Yeah, but think about how good she felt. Yeah. yeah. In fairness, Horace at least had like a week to go and write the thing. You had to do it on the spot. <laughs> I know. Well, afterwards, we looked at each other and I said, you definitely got in. And she's like, oh, my God, I don't know. And I'm like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Wait, was it really like that? Like it was just pitting two people against each other and whoever does better gets in? Or was it, that seems... Uh, no, I mean, we could have both not gotten in or both gotten in, but it just so oh, happened so. that she was amazing and I was mid. That's so strange. <laughs> that just seems like a scene from a gladiator film. Yeah, the the nerd you know, gladiators. Like the, the Iron Gate lifts and it's like, I have a PhD in yeah. molecular genetics! <laughs> and I was like, I barely figured out how to get to this room today. <laughs> Yeah. Have you ever had a poem battle with someone, Ross? Like, you both agree to write a poem on a topic and it ends up like this? Oh, legitimately, yes. And it ended up like this? Uh, yeah. Who is your friend who wrote the greatest poem of Wait, all the time? The Shelley or the, the Smith? Oh, I was the Horace. I was totally the I'm Smith. I'm sorry that I immediately assumed you were the Horace. I shouldn't have. Oh, no, no, that's, that's true. No, I'm, I'm really lucky because I hang out with poets who are much, much better better writers than I am. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. Right. You should always uh, be outclassed by your friends. Mm-hmm. My, my buddy Matt and I often will sort of do a poem a day for a month and we end up in conversation with each other. And a few times we've sort of tried 
writing on the same topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his have ended up in books and mine have ended up in a, a circular file. <laughs> We're talking about Matthew Oldsman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Matthew Oldsman, possibly the most underrated poet in the country. Seriously, if you haven't read Matthew Oldsman yet, go read that dude. He's brilliant. His new book is called Constellation Route, and it is freaking amazing. I actually saw him pop up. I can't remember if it was Reddit or Instagram, but it was one of these um, poetry communities that usually posts like terrible poems. And so I was very pleased to see that one of Matthew Olsman's poems did pop up on that. And I was like, oh, damn, like someone actually has taste on this one. Yeah. Was it that um, was it a poem about gun violence? No, actually, it was the one. It was his love poem about the bottle of Sprite or Mountain Dew? I forget which one it is. Oh, yeah. Mountain Dew commercial disguised as a love poem. Yeah. So he's gone viral twice. Yeah, I think he's actually gone viral more than that. Every so often he hits the zeitgeist uh, because he's he's really conversational. Mm. He's one of the easiest poets to read and feel like I understand poems, which I think a lot of people don't feel Mm -hmm. when they read a lot of contemporary poetry. Mm. Yeah. Well, don't undersell yourself. You're also a very good poet. You have several books out, chapbooks and also longer books, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and thank you for that, Jackie. You're very sweet. No, just because I I have uh, killer friends, that actually has elevated me so much because Mm -hmm. I'm constantly writing in conversation with them. Yeah. When your best friends are doing some of the best work in the country, the work that you most admire, of course, you're like, I got to give me some of that. And you do get better really fast. It's like how yeah. Theo started his second podcast mm. where he's one of the hosts because he just really admired how great at hosting Jackie and I are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, Theo? <laughs> I feel like you're building the pedestal here, Rachel. Yeah. By the end of the episode, we're going to look where around. she's going to topple. Our podcast will be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think you said in this poem, you felt like the turn comes at line 12, which is nothing beside remains. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's been this big buildup of like, ah, you know, he's got the, he's got the stern face and the... The sculptors perfectly read these passions. And then he says, like, the greatest I'm a badass phrase ever. (laughs) And then it just follows with nothing's there. Which somehow hits so different from, uh, again, not to shit on Horace. He did a a good job. (laughs) Yeah, which was the city's gone. I just got strong Nana vibes from that. Like the end of 99 Red Balloons where she's like... Here I am sitting pretty in this dust that was a city. And it's just like, yeah, I, I don't know. Nana did that better, too. So Horace, I well, okay. now that I'm... I actually think that's not the part of Horace's poem that's so bad. The par- Or not bad. I think his poem, I don't hate it or anything. The part that is a problem for me is that Shelley implied that this is what's going to happen to every empire ever. Yeah. But Smith was like, whoa, what if it happened to London? <laughs> and like anytime you bring like if an English person starts talking about England, I check out, honestly, like that's fine. That's enough. Well, we said we're not going to talk about Shelley much, but he he hated what Britain was doing. Right. So this is part of why he wrote this. Right, Ross? He didn't like his king. Honestly, I don't know a lot about the history of the poem. I just love its making so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he he definitely was like, he wasn't a fan of the current government. I don't know how like anti-British mm-hmm. he was though in general. I don't know, Ross. It's funny because like you're a poetry, you know, professor and poet and, you know, you live and breathe like talking and figuring out the construction of poems and the deconstruction of poems. But do you sometimes feel like the more you look into things that you love, the scarier it gets? I feel like that. Sometimes I don't want to really look under the hood. What do you mean by scarier? I f- thank you, uh, therapist Theo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. I just feel like 
the more that I look into the lives of people that I admire and the history of what caused something to be created that I love and that means something huge to me, this happens a ton on the podcast when we're talking about books and, and poems and other works that you know I feel strongly about. Sometimes I've interpreted them in a way that makes it feel very meaningful to me. And then when I read about what the author actually meant, they may not have meant the same thing that I did. And then I'm like, oh. So it takes a little bit of the magic away from me. And so ignorance is bliss a little bit. Well, I think there's two ways to look at that. And and one is, I'll quote Colin Malloy from The Decemberists, uh, who says, <laughs> everything is awful. Uh-huh. Human beings make beautiful things, but human beings are almost always going to disappoint you in some way, some shape, some form, right? Yeah. Sooner or later, you're going to discover something about the maker and you think, oh, Mm-hmm. That invalidates my ability to enjoy the work, or if not, if it doesn't invalidate it, at least it, it casts a pall over that. Right, and then you realize your parents are fallible, and it's like, God, what else could go wrong today? <laughs> I, the other way of looking at it is, you know, that disappointment that you feel when you've brought something to the work that the author didn't necessarily intend. I tend to believe that as fallible as we are, people are also capable of amazing connections and we're not always cognizant of the ways in which those connections happen in our brains. And a lot of times students will bring poems into my classroom and we'll read them and we'll say, well, okay, here's what you've got and this is what it's doing. They're like, well, I didn't mean for any of that to happen. (laughs) And I always say, well, not consciously, but on some level, yeah, your brain is smart enough to know that that was an outcome. And so you get to claim it. It's yours. It's there. That is very therapeutic, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. I've seen like recently a couple examples of people handling or like creators handling that well and poorly, which to me, the ones that come to mind the most are the Pixar movie Luca about like the little Italian merboys. A lot of people saw the movie and they saw it as like a metaphor for coming out or like for being gay or for being trans or whatever. And they, you know, they talked about it like this was so meaningful to me as like a trans dude or whatever. And the director was like, no, that was about friendship only. Wow. And then there's also there's like an old Nickelodeon cartoon called My Life as a Teenage Robot. And a lot of people were like, she really reads as trans feminine to me. And the creator was like, you know, I didn't intend that, but that's a great interpretation. I love it. Like, thank you very much for sharing. Right. Or I was going to say, I always talk about how into the Spider-Verse people talk about like, this is so validating for trans people and like kids realizing that they, you know, have something within them that... They feel like they can't let out. It could be anything, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting. Yeah, I just I don't understand why a creator wouldn't, if they hear an interpretation they didn't intend, just be like, "Wow, thank you for telling me about that," <laughs> instead of saying, "No." Yeah. Like well, you know, again, I think it it tracks back to the fact that we're all fundamentally flawed, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as we tell human stories, mm-hmm. people are going to hear shades of other human stories. It's all connected. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say that's not possible in my work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are definitely times where you put something on the page, it reads away and you think, wow, I I didn't intend that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it'll lead you to go back and change the work. Right. And then other times you're like, you're like that second creator who's like, what a great read. I'm so thrilled mm-hmm. that it can be read that way. Right. 
I feel like also, I mean, if there really was something that you were trying to get across, like, say, Matthew Olsman's say, poem about gun violence. Do you remember? What, uh, you know what it's called. I'm sure I don't. Letter beginning with two lines by Cheshla Miwosh. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah. for example, with that, if nobody had understood that he was trying to talk about gun violence, that poem would not have succeeded in what he wanted it to do, right? Right. So, in some ways, you do have to get across some things. Yeah, I don't think you can just say, well, you know, here's word salad, and it can mean whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's lazy craftsmanship. You have to have skin in the game. Yeah, I really hoped that was true. Oh, I think a lot of people hope that's true when they first <laughs> write a poem. I feel like when you read a book, well, I'm less in the world of poetry than Jackie, unsurprisingly. But like when you read a book or you watch a TV show that kind of has an ambiguous ending, for me, I feel like I can tell when the creator knew what was going on and when they like didn't know what was going on. And to me, I'm fine with them not telling me as long as I feel like you had something that you were trying to say. I like when it's the ending, I'm I'm like totally with you. You mm. know, you think about like the last episode of The Sopranos or Lost. <laughs> well, so Lost to me is different though because Lost the ending wasn't as ambiguous as they had opened up all these narrative threads and they had no idea what they were doing. Yeah, they, they didn't answer their questions. Right. <laughs> I'm so mad. <laughs> that to me is really different than, say, the end of a show like Undone, where in this final moment, it can be X, it can be Y, it can be Z. You don't get the benefit of certainty. Mm -hmm. That ambiguity, I think, can be really beautiful. Or like any modern horror movie. I feel like people always end up saying like, I don't get it. Like, was she a ghost or wasn't she? And it's like, that's like not the, the point. the monster is <laughs> human sexuality or something. But yeah, Lost <laughs> pisses me off because it's like, they had no earthly idea. They were just like, well, what's going to shock people? Oh, are we supposed to do something with this? Nah. <laughs> just, it really made me mad. And Okay, J.J. Abrams, I know you're listening. Like, that, that is a flaw in in a lot of your storytelling, by the way. So fix it. Right? Yes. Alias? He comes up with cool stuff, but you can't just have cool stuff. You have to have a reason. Oh, man. Right? Do you remember in Alias that spinning red ball and all that Rimbaldi mystery? And then it was just like, none of it mattered? Mm. He's probably just hoping that the show gets canceled. So then it's like, oh, it's out of my hands. I didn't get to wrap it up. <laughs> Sorry, I had a really cool reason for the polar bear, but I guess yeah. we'll never know. Yeah, those execs at ABC, they sure suck, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. well, I feel like in poetry, like, I mean, how are you going to have a poem where you feel like someone didn't know what was going on? Certain Instagram poets. I don't know. No, Ross, maybe you'll disagree. Like, can you have like a 14 line poem where it seems like they're killing it for like 12 of it? And then in the last two, you're like, you totally lost the thread. Like, oh, I was supposed to have a turn here. I was supposed to <laughs> yeah, surprise yeah. people and I, I didn't have anything planned. <laughs> I think I, I think I would call that not sticking the landing. <laughs> right. But that happens all the time. I mean, God, I do that. Every one of my first drafts loses the thread. <laughs> and I'm like, what am I doing? Again? Like, what was I doing? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That happens all the time. And you just hope you have the good sense to go back and revise it before everyone in the world sees that. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Ross White. He loves this poem, and so do we. <laughs> if you would like to support this podcast, you can go on patreon.com slash fire the cannon. And there you can find various tiers where you can give various amounts to get various <laughs> rewards. If you give $3 a month or more, you can get access to all of our bonus content, which includes a lot of fun stuff. We read goosebumps. We do other things too. Um, we prepare quizzes for each other that we have to answer. Sometimes we just talk about 
sleep talk. Sometimes we talk about alien theories. Sometimes we talk about whirlwind romances. It's really just a it's a hodgepodge of delightful stuff over there. Yeah, so check it out. Go to patreon.com slash fire the cannon. All right, cool. back to the episode. Do you think Shelly ruined for other people the genre of like, damn, empires fall. Can other poets write about this? Or or is everyone going to be like, well, come on, it's no Ozymandias. Well, maybe, but (laughs) Jay-Z's still out there saying pound for pound, I'm the best to ever come around here. And I'm like, oh, Jay, oh, watch Uh out. Watch out. (laughs) If B ever leaves you, you know. (laughs) But you better not have a statue with that on it because one day that shit's going to fall. And then that's uh-huh. going to be silly. Uh-huh. And we don't do silly. Or she's going to make like the comeback album to that one day. And oh, mm. uh-uh. I'm sorry. But if he leaves you. Yeah, that empire's <laughs> over. But the thing is, I don't think that the wonderful thing about poetry is that it's infinitely renewing. And I don't think that anybody ever has the last word. I mean, yeah, this is this is one of the greatest poems. And I think uh, his buddy Horace is out there like, yeah, it's going to be tough to top that. But at some point, somebody's going to give voice to that idea again. And it's going to be in different circumstances. And it's going to it's going to absolutely throttle us because it's going to respond to some new cycle in the cycle of empire. Right. You know, Shelley is looking at England and saying, like, you know, we suck, too. And an American poet is going to. Well, I think a number of American poets have already voiced this. But somebody's you know, we're probably going to get 100 years down the road. You know, the the heads in jars are going to be like, oh, so it was, you know, Poet X who did it mm. because everybody's head will be in a jar in 100 years. <laughs> you know, that's how we avert <laughs> right. the climate crisis. So you can just keep simplifying things and simplifying things. Like, it's not like there can only be one good take on death. Everybody's experience of the fall of the empire or being in love or the autumn leaves or the spring flowers or whatever, like, you can always get something different out of it. And ultimately, every poem is going to end up being I feel like the best ones have a deeper meaning, but maybe not all of them. I do remember being given the advice that everybody has already written about the autumn flowers and, or sorry, the autumn leaves and the spring flowers, so you, sh- you just shouldn't do it. And I think when you're young, you need to be told stuff like that. Oh, yeah. But maybe it's not true forever. Right. When I was young, I would get so angry when I would see poems about birds and trees <laughs> with not a whole lot else going on, just sort of the quiet, calm poem. Yeah. You know, now that I'm in middle age, damned if I'm not writing <laughs> quiet poems about birds and trees. And I'm like, man, 30-year-old Ross would hate 47-year-old Ross. But let's be honest, 30-year-old Ross suck. <laughs> we read that poem about, you know— coming upon a field of daffodils. And when we started, I think Jackie was like, I don't like the poem. But then after we finished the episode, I think think by the end you were like, actually, I like it. Not even that long. I think the first two lines, I was like, this sucks. It's fired. We're firing this out of the cannon. Yeah, wait a second. (laughs) Yeah, because it's like, uh, what are the first two lines again? Like... I wandered lonely as a cloud. But, you know, the cool thing about that is that one of my favorite poems is a Jennifer Chang poem called Dorothy Wordsworth that is just a scathing direct response to that poem and so playful. And once we put it out there, it's in conversation with everything else that has been written, but it's also in conversation with all these things that are going to be written. And so, you know, we can get angry uh, at the pastoral poem for being pastoral. 
at some point somebody will be like, why are you angry at the pastoral? And they'll be angry at you for being angry at them. Why am I angry at the pastoral? Because we don't have nature anymore and (laughs) I'm just upset about everything. But I was upset with it by the first two lines. I was like, this is stupid. Anybody could have written those two lines. But then by the end of it, it's like, oh, uh, yeah, not anybody could have done this. Like this, this had some craft to it. There's something to admire. There's a reason that it is a famous poem, even though it's become a cliche. Yeah, that's what we thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, the world is littered with people who are like, well, if if I were a writer, I could have written that. It's like, yeah, "Yeah, but you're not. And you didn't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we'll have to look at that Dorothy Wordsworth poem again then Um, or look at it for the first time, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. It's in her book called uh, Some Say the Lark. I'm just curious because I have so little technical knowledge about poetry. <laughs> you talked about the form of, you know, the lines and the rhyme scheme. I'm just wondering, is there anything else you can just point out for my benefit? Anything, <laughs> any devices or anything that you found particularly effective? Or Yeah, and for listeners. Yeah. Well, so the poem is in a fairly regular meter, right? I met a traveler from an antique land. That's iambic pentameter. Mm-hmm. Everybody heard that term when studying Shakespeare in high school and and then heard da 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 da, and you're just like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I met a traveler. <laughs> right. You know, if you want to read this poem in the gallop, you sort of can. But there are a couple of places where there are these substitutions on that pattern to sort of change things up mm. a little bit. So, you know, you wouldn't read the line, look on my works, ye mighty in despair. It'd be look on my works. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we hear the substitution, and those moments of substitution often come when there's just some kind of tweak in the the stakes or the tension of the poem. Mm. I love that, that these little substitutions can call our attention sonically to a hot spot so that we recognize on some rhythmic level, like, oh, something's changed. I got to pay attention here. Mm. And it just sort of attenuates our attention. I love that. Last week, um, we recorded an episode um, about the Mexican poet Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. And her poems were also very sonically interesting. But only in Spanish. (laughs) In Spanish, but also in English, weirdly enough. Do you think, Ross, that poems can have just objective sonic value like you can that sounds really weird that sounds like a, a weird indie band or something you know what i mean <laughs> like the 90s yeah 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 um there's gonna be trumpet involved for sure <laughs> god it's a ska band oh, no. oh, no, it's a ska band. um do you think that you know you could have a poem that just sounds good and you don't even have to know what it means right you can i believe yeah oh totally and sometimes you have a poem that because of those sonics and because of its sort of atmospheric design, you feel a certain way, but you can't actually say that you know what the poem means. Yes, and me with every poem. Thank God. That's infuriating <laughs> at times, but also it's so delightful when you walk away and you're like, I love that. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's like a magic trick. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, there are movies like that where you're like, I don't exactly know what just happened, but I love that. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of goes back to me like not wanting to look under the hood, like I said before, or not really wanting to see, quote, how the sausage gets made, which is how many writers describe their work, apparently, <laughs> that we've talked to on this podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when you like something and you don't exactly know why, I feel like there's this pressure sometimes to figure out why, and maybe we don't always have to do that. Maybe we 
can just be comfortable saying like, yeah, I can learn something from this about why it spoke to me without me even understanding it because I want my poems or my work of art or whatever it is to be understandable to people or sorry, to make people feel something even if they don't really understand it. You know, how do we craft that? I I love the engineering of the poem, though, and I always want to know. And there are poems where I've never figured it out. Bridget Pegeen Kelly comes to mind as Mm -hmm. a, a writer who... Every time I try to figure out exactly how her poems work, I can lay out 50 different elements of craft that she's deploying, but I still can't figure out how it's so freaking good Yeah, because her poems are just amazing. And when you said you wanted to talk about your favorite poem, I thought it was going to be a Bridget Pegeen Kelly poem. Oh, I do love the poem Song. I know. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about that on the podcast at another time. But the poem Song starts with the word listen and then a colon. Yeah. And that's so authority. That's authoritative as fuck. And then she just continues on. It's kind of like Beowulf. (laughs) Yeah. Clark or something. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, she's so good about directing the attention of the listener. But Um, that's like. Yes. Let me come back next year during National Poetry Month and talk about that poem because it's such a badass poem. But I'll tell you, Ross, like every poet that went through the UNC creative writing poem ended up having to physically stop our hands from writing the word listen at the beginning of every poem or look or watch this or, you know, just like something like that. Yeah. Or what I mean to say is. Look on my words, you might be in despair. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But we're always trying to sort of marshal a a reader's attention because it's a resource, Mm -hmm. right? And we have to direct it and we have to, at times we have to manipulate it and we have to be careful with it because it's so easily lost and we want them to stay in the world that we're creating. It requires us to be crafty and not in the sense, you know, you you hear the word crafty and you, you think that there's a negative connotation. But I actually, I really mean like it requires us to be at the top of our intelligence as makers of things. And, you know, I think every artist does this in whatever medium they're in. They're trying to deploy all of their technical skill. But in the end, if all you have is technique, the product is kind of empty, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the whole goal is like, how do I, and this is, I think this is why I'm always trying to tear (laughs) apart the things that I love because I'm trying to figure out how it works then do enough of it in bad drafts that I get it into muscle memory so Mm -hmm. that one day when I actually have something useful to say that's not about fucking birds and trees... That the muscles are going to work as I write and I'm going to deploy those craft elements without thinking too hard about it Mm -hmm. and make something. And hopefully then I'll get that reading where somebody says, oh, you know, when I read it, it was about this. And I'll think that's not what I intended. But thank you. But yes. Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious. You said you're trying to get it sort of in your muscles so that when you have something important to say, it it will all be there like for you. I'm curious. When do you think you'll have something to say? Like what I would imagine you have lots of life experience at this point and lots of That's a sweet way of saying you're old. You're 47, right? Yeah. Like what are you waiting for? Well, I mean, I I think of myself the same way and I I'm 29, right? Like No. I guess I wonder what to you feels like something of value to to say that what what would get you there? I guess is what I'm wondering. You know, I think a lot of people there's this popular conception of the poet in the long flowing skirt who steps to the microphone and is like, earth and sky come through me. And and they sort of set themselves up as though they're like so deeply in touch with, you know, the ephemeral or the ethereal or 
the mystical. And I'm sure that there are some people like that, but I have never been one of those. And I think have most you tried poets... buying a long flowing skirt? Because <laughs> oh, yeah. don't seem like you're really yeah. okay. Just making uh, sure. A lot of my twenties, yeah. but I, I don't think most poets are like that. I actually think most poets sit down at the desk and it's work, and you got to do it. And if you do it well, eventually you discover that you knew something through the act of writing Mm -hmm. and the act of writing. Well, sometimes the poem is just smarter than the poet is, right? Mm -hmm. Because you get closer to the part of the brain that makes those connections. So you surprise yourself on the page and you discover something that you didn't know you wanted to say. But there are days where something has happened and you think, I got to I got to get a pen and paper. I got to get to the desk. And those are few and far between, like, you know, especially over the last couple of years of the pandemic, I didn't wake up every day like, I feel inspired, <laughs> hooray! Yeah. But sometimes <laughs> if I if I was working my way through that Birds and Trees poem, eventually it would lead to a place and I would think, I didn't know I wanted to enter this territory. Mm-hmm. And It feels amazing. It does. It does. And that's the only time, Theo, that I actually really know that I have something to say is after I've said it, I've let it sit for six months. I come back to the draft. And I'm like, oh, that's not bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> OK. And Theo and I have talked before about like when you sit down to create something and then it turns into something else and it feels like you have no control over it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And to use your word, Jackie, that's scary. Thank you. Yes. I'm not the only one with fear, it seems. <laughs> it, like it is a scary feeling when yeah, when you're you're you continue writing something and it's getting further and further away from what you originally planned. You feel like you need to hold on to the original plan, but yeah, you know, sometimes it's not necessary. See, but I, f- I feel like I, I find that interesting. It seems like you find that scary. It seems like that because you just said that you did. And I think it can be both. Yeah. You know, you can have the draft that discovers the new thing and the draft that has the old idea that you sort of zero back on. Mm-hmm. Oh, multiple drafts. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just curious. What, what? I mean, at, at some point it has to become one, right? Theseus is ship. We always get here. <laughs> you know, or it's two separate products, you know, like, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, maybe I'll change the name of my poem from Ozymandias to some legs in a desert, some long (laughs) shit about a pedestal. (laughs) I also thought this is totally unrelated, but going back to Horace Smith, he talked about one leg. He said, there's a leg. (laughs) And Percy Shelley took it and said, I'm going to talk about two legs. Twice as good. Yeah. He just really did him one better in every, in every aspect. (laughs) Well, they had a third dumb friend who wrote a draft where it was three three legs. legs. I know. Yeah. That draft was lost to history. (laughs) That draft served a different purpose. I I guess I'm curious with talking about this feeling of writing is also a process of discovery. You know, as you write, you you realize you're like tapping into some other part of yourself that you weren't intending to at the beginning. Do you ever have a sense of, you look at a poem you've written that you are happy with, but you feel lost on how to recreate that? Oh, recreate something about like the the feeling about it or, or anything, you know? Yeah, that that is, for me, that's one of the hardest things in revision is sometimes you're like, you're in a certain headspace, you write the poem, you come back later, you're not in that headspace and you're trying to recreate the feeling of it to honor that draft. And you're just like, I can't get there. Mm. Sometimes, you know, your new headspace provides the tension that the piece needs you know it's like here's a little bit of pushback on the initial idea because i think a lot of poems like ozymandias like that's a poem that's full of so much tension right like so many forces are kind of pushing against each other all throughout that poem which i just freaking love Mm -hmm. so sometimes 
you know, your new headspace can provide that tension. And then other times, like you just can't get back in any meaningful way and you needed to. And so, yeah, sometimes I've got a bunch of abandoned poems because I'm like, yeah, I'm not that person anymore who wrote that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just got to let it go. It's not going to get finished. Yeah. I, I think that's why it's so interesting to read books of poetry as opposed to like individual poems or, you know, like best of collections or something. Mm -hmm. Cause I find it so interesting, especially with modern poets, or maybe it's with all poets, but I'm just not smart enough to notice it in other ones. But when you can see that they're working around the same idea in multiple different ways, and even they'll use the same words, the same lines, even sometimes in multiple poems, and they'll come back throughout the book and you're just like, oh my God, this whole thing is one big poem. And then it's like, <laughs> I feel like some, like you can fear to do that. I feel like I talk about fear a lot when I'm talking about writing poems, because there's a lot of things that I'm afraid to do because I'm like, ah, somebody else already did that, can't do that. And then it's like, well, if I do this thing, you know, it gets into a whole thing. I need a therapist for poetry. Maybe you need to expose your therapy and you just need to plagiarize tons of poems and try to publish them and get in trouble. I just need to write a poem called Spring Flowers. <laughs> okay, out of my system. Done. Yeah. Yeah. That's a scary thing, though, because, I mean, who has an original idea in this day and no age? No one. Theo. He's having a, a totally ballet. original life experience. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but we're all having original life experiences for this particular moment in time. That is what I feel like keeps things going. Yeah, nobody's ever made a podcast before. That's true. You guys were the first, and that's... That would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah. I feel like every every experience we have is sort of a shade of some experience somebody else has had. I actually find that really comforting, you yeah. know, that... That I'm not singularly alone in the world having an experience that I can't even rely on other people to feel some sense of empathy toward. Right. That that must be nice. Um, <laughs> All of Jackie's experiences are singularly unique. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrifying, but, you know, that's why I'm so special. But I think what's cool is that, like, everybody's living their own. You're the only one who's had that combination. You're doing all the same things everybody's done, but never in that order, never with that same intensity or whatever it is. So, I mean, that's that's why we create artists to say, I am here. I'm here. Yeah. Look at my works. One day, like Ozymandias, we won't be here. I was going to ask if you find this poem comforting. Oh, uh, it's bleak as hell. <laughs> but yeah, actually I do because I guess the sort of metatextual thing that I don't think Shelley could possibly have thought about at the time was, yeah, the, the statue crumbles. But then how many, you know, what, 1,500, 17, I don't even, I don't know when Ozymandias was alive. Maybe like 1,900 years later, some dude comes along and re-immortalizes him. By this point, yeah, the statue probably is gone, but now the poem is in every high school <laughs> English classroom ever mm -hmm. and is probably going to be with us for quite some time. So... Yeah, look on my worksheet, mighty in despair, and then nothing beside remains except the greatest poem in the English language. Yeah. Ozymandias played him so good. He got the last laugh. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because we do despair, right? But not why, not the reason he thought we would. We're despairing for a different reason. Yeah. And that's why that line is so great. I think the, the comforting thing for me here is that with art, nothing lasts. And yet there is a certain immortality. There's a through line. Yeah. There's a conversation that goes on for centuries and centuries and centuries. Yes, the individual speakers may get lost, but those big ideas are often passed down and transformed. And it's why we're living such similar existences over and over and over again, because there are really good ideas about what it is to be a human and what it is to be moral in the world and what it is 
to pursue a, a life filled with joy and beauty and wonder. And those ideas are persistent. And sadly, there are other ideas that are persistent. But those are the ones that I choose to sort of celebrate, even in a poem about a dictator who feels uh, pretty brutal in this poem. You know, like all y'all other suckers can step aside. <laughs> Somebody else has transformed that into a piece that is wondrous, not merely in what it says, but in how it says it mm -hmm. with all those layers of remove and those off rhymes and the stunning metrical substitutions. I find that endlessly renewing. You know, now that I think about it, the desert doesn't have to be the final space. There's a, a movie that I really love that I made Theo watch, um, which I, <laughs> it's called A Ghost Story. And it's, it's got called Leprechaun 2, Back to yeah. the Hood. <laughs> it's got Kesha in it. <laughs> but the basic idea is like someone's a ghost and they watch not just, you know, the rest of like the life of their wife play out in their house where they died. But they also watch, like, the next family move in and the next one and the next one. And they watch the house get torn down and they watch, like, a city get built in its place. And it's like, then something happens and it starts over again and now it's back in time and it's, like, on the land where hundreds of years ago the house would be built. And then the ghost has to sit there and just watch and watch and watch and it never gets to leave. It just watches this one spot as everything changes and nothing stays the same. And yet it's cyclical also. And I think I, I'm thinking of this, like, Mandius, like, yeah, one day that desert could be an amazing city with like skyscrapers, or it could be something totally different. It could be something that's never been there before that we'll never, you know, get to even imagine what it could be. Could be an ocean again. Yeah. Or it could be Cairo, yeah. right? Right, right. <laughs> and then that inscription on that statue means something different. Mm. It's not that this is dead, like it's dead and past and gone. It's that things are changing all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's a, an Egyptian pharaoh saying it. You know, we still have Egypt and Egypt is a place that is very aware of its own history. It's a confluence of so many different cultures over a series of centuries. And I think modern Egypt, yes, some of that tension is expressed, mm. uh, the tension between those cultures, but there's incredible beauty in modern Egypt as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, something has lasted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my question for you about this movie is why does the ghost never take a vacation? Jackie? Why does the ghost never take a vacation? Do ghosts have a choice? I don't think they have PTO. He probably used up his whole bank. Uh, yeah. 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 I, I guess if you got a clock in every day. He needs a union. There is a part when, you know, it becomes the future and then the ghost is just like, I'm so sick of this. And then he throws himself off a skyscraper and dies again. And now there's two ghosts. And that's when it starts over in the beginning. And I was just like, man, you just got to watch this movie. It's crazy. It, nothing happens. Nothing happens. It's just a ghost standing there watching shit go on in its house and it's just like oh no <laughs> it does something to me i can't explain why it's like it's like we talked about with the poem to turn my video off because everybody keeps freezing <laughs> no we're just stunned yeah, yeah just stunned. Just that. like oh my god ghosts <laughs> i'm know? still thinking about ghost suicide <laughs> yeah theo did you, did that movie stick with you the way that it did with me it's another potential band name yeah ghost suicide i mean my favorite parts of that movie were the more personal parts but i did like the idea that it expanded beyond what it seemed capable of originally yeah like when i told you it was a ghost movie with kesha in it you thought this could be a couple things let's see ross so um i don't know if there's more you want to say i feel like you know we we could go on forever you said something really profound like five minutes ago and i feel bad that we kept talking <laughs> <laughs> what was it what was it i have no idea Seemed like a good <laughs> concluding remark you mean when he was like talking about like people say good things or like people do good things all the time and sometimes they do bad things. But 
I like to do my poetry about good stuff and blah. like he said other things. I'm not going to rehash. <laughs> Go back, rewind and listen. Oh, and, and honestly, Rachel, a lot of my poetry is a total bummer. So don't get oh, too excited by what I said. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm really I'm trying to write into more joyful spaces. I taught a, a class just on the poetics of joy. <laughs> so we studied joyful poems, but then we tried to look at how does joy work? in poems, which was turned out to be a really necessary class during the pandemic. People I was going to ask. Yes, need this. Yeah. And it was really, it was wonderful. But, um, you know, we I think we all came away feeling like that joy is so often an ephemeral thing and its discovery is so wrapped up in how it is discovered. So there, there didn't turn out to be an easy formula for like, you know, step one, metaphor, step two, uh, syntax, step three, profit, you know, like where, <laughs> you know, the joy wasn't that easy to pin down. Mm-hmm. But God, it was fun to study. Yeah. Did you do that poem about the orange? Do you know what I'm talking about? That like frequently goes around on social. Yeah, media. the orange yeah. by Wendy Cope. Yeah, did you do that? Yeah. In class? <laughs> oh yeah, like on day three. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, I, as soon as you said joyful poetry, I was like, I love you. I'm glad I exist. Like that's the perfect choice. Yes. It's oh, and I love Wendy Cope because she is so. That's one of her more straightforward and earnest poems. But she is also one of the most incredibly witty formal poets. Mm. She uses all of these like old received forms and breathes new life into them just by being a total smart aleck and i adore her (laughs) yeah there's so many poems about oranges you could really just go either way like then you have mock orange by louise glick and it's like that is a downer poem about an orange not not happy not happy i once wrote a poem about rachel giving me an orange oh gosh i don't even know that rachel knows that i wrote this poem was it a bad thing or a good thing (laughs) it was rachel comes off the bus and hands me an orange and she says i want to be known as the kind of girl who does stuff like this (laughs) and that's a very uh that's a real life poem because rachel did that and rachel made that for me. I didn't have to do anything. She created the poetry. I guess I am now. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so is the poem just you describing the event? Uh, I mean, it's not a very good poem. Let's, yeah. Well, it starts like this, Theo. It starts, I met a traveler from an antique <laughs> yeah. land who yeah. said, Rachel got off the bus <laughs> and handed me an art. It starts, listen, Rachel got off this bus. <laughs> listen, I met an antique traveler. <laughs> yeah. Rachel's an antique traveler. I think it was just a funny moment that didn't end up being that great of a poem, but... Wow, rude. Well, no, like, we talk about, like, you you can't have an epitaph to a poem that is better than the poem itself, and you can't have, like, a moment that is more interesting than the poem itself. And I think that's an example of a moment that was more interesting than what it became. I was walking onto a bus. Rachel was walking off the same bus. We did not expect to see each other. She hands me an orange and just says, I want to be known as the girl who does stuff like this. And then I just get on the bus you know, and I'm I like, did that what recently. am I? You did that same exact thing? What are you talking about? I went to a bachelorette party in Palm Springs and they had this bag of mandarins and we hadn't finished it. And I was like, we can't get rid of these. I'll take the mandarins. But I had like my giant suitcase with me. So I checked it at the UPS store and I said to the people there, I was like, hey, I've got like a dozen mandarins and I don't want to carry them all with me. Would you like some? And the woman was like, and I want to be known as the kind of girl who gives people mandarins. Well, the woman yeah. the counter was like, how much? And reached for her wallet. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you can just have some. <laughs> I am the free mandarin spirit. <laughs> I mean, know? as far as affectations go, that's a pretty good one to have. Giving people cuties yeah ridding the world of scurvy yeah oh honestly yeah and then in another universe there was someone who wrote a much better poem than i did and it was uh what was it yeah it was probably just way better (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> some pretty low self-esteem checks. And when the multiverses come together, we'll find out that it was you, you that guy. wrote that better poem. You stuck with it a little longer. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you know what? Maybe I need to imagine like a, an imaginary Horace Smith on my shoulder every time that I'm writing. Like, okay, good on you, Horace Smith, but just imagine that like there is somebody who wrote something worse. I'm the Shelley now. Yeah, I'm the Shelley. I am the Shelley now. <laughs> so um, maybe, Ross, do you want to talk about your chapbook podcast? Um, I know we're excited about Trivia Escape Pod yeah, too, but it's currently, uh, well, it's in a coma it's, right it's now. It's on hiatus. It's in space. <laughs> we're all put into hypersleep or whatever. Yeah, the problem with that podcast is it sometimes the pod goes into quadrants of space that don't have very good telecommunications <laughs> networks. It's like not 5G out there. It's like the Delta Quadrant. So uh, hopefully it'll get back in, in range and beam yeah. that episode back because you guys are, are pretty brilliant on that. For context, Trivia Escape Pod is a, is a trivia podcast which has the premise that if the team playing gets the answers right, gets enough of the answers right, there's enough juice to keep the, the spaceship going, right? The pod's fuel is trivia answers. Yeah. Yeah. Points, yeah. power in the pod. And uh, I guess somebody who wasn't us lost because we definitely won on our episode. Yeah. Yeah, it, clearly that's what happened. We'll we'll find out when that episode uh, <laughs> finds its way back into this quadrant of space. Yes. But <laughs> my uh, my current podcast is called The Chat Book. I co-host. Mm. I coast off my co-host's hard work. <laughs> I do actually do that. Um, my co-host is Noah Stetzer, who is the associate director at Bull City Press. So we work together a lot and- he is brilliant and the most generous reader of chapbooks and also has maybe the greatest laugh on the planet. I just love it when I hear him laugh. And we talk about chapbooks. We talk about chapbooks that have come out. We talk to publishers of chapbooks. We talk to writers of chapbooks. We plug chapbooks that are coming up. And then we talk about the business of chapbooks. So it's pretty much if you've ever wanted to write a book and thought, that seems like a lot of work, but I could probably do 20 pages. <laughs> this is the podcast for you. Wow. That's a really good selling point, too, because now I want to hear the most amazing laugh in the world. I don't know what I'm missing. It's really wonderful. Yeah. He has the warmest laugh and it just makes me happy. Wow. Sometimes we'll be doing a very serious episode and I'll still be trying to make him laugh a little bit just because it delights <laughs> me to no end to hear him laugh. I feel mm. like that's what people say about like being in love with another person. It's just like I just it just makes me happy to hear you laugh. I just need you to do it. You could just be in love with the laugh. I do. Well, I love my co-host. Noah is like he's one of the greatest people. We should all love our co-hosts. We dearly, do. Which I know you we guys do. do. Yeah, I know you guys have a, a great time together. I mean, you have that laugh recorded. You could just cut it out. Snip it, loop it, listen anytime you want. Make it your text <laughs> alert. Yeah. yeah, spin it around, drop it and reverse it. I am thinking about making like a white noise tape to it and just sleeping <laughs> yeah. with his laugh echoing in the background all night. Or maybe an alarm clock. That would be pretty funny. Yeah. So we'll check that out. And then, um, Ross, you're the author yourself of three chapbooks, and they are Valley of Want, How We Came Upon the Colony, and The Polite Society. And you're also the author of Charm Offensive, which is a full-length collection of poetry, correct? Yeah, that one's forthcoming still. Yes, forthcoming, but it uh, did win the 2019 Sexton Prize, so congratulations on that. Oh, why, thank you. Yes. Ross is a very accomplished poet in his own right, so don't let him just only talk up other poets because this is a very positive, vibey space, but we also need to brag sometimes. So I'll brag about our guest. Oh, thanks, Jackie. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Fire the Cannon. Did you like the episode? Yes. Let us know on all of our... So- Jackie, I was asking the audience. Let us know on all of our social media. Everything is at Fire the Cannon Pod. We yeah. got Twitter. We got Instagram. We got TikTok. Yeah. We have a website. Firethecannonpod.com. We have an email. Firethecannonpod at gmail.com. And if you want to check out our Patreon, uh, like Ross did. Ross is actually one of our patrons. It, can, it is patreon.com slash firethecannon. Cannon is spelled C-A-N-O-N. So check that out and um, become a patron if you're so inclined. It helps us to keep creating this podcast and do new and fun stuff and try new things. And if you have feedback for us, please let us know. Um, You know, we've been trying some new things lately and we want to know what you think about it. Um, Do you like it? Do you not like it? Did you not notice either way? Whatever. You're still listening. We're happy. Um, All right. Thanks, guys. Love it. Have a good one.